It's six o'clock on the dot and welcome to WORT's local news for Thursday, October 19th. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. And I'm your host, Sean Bull. In tonight's news, Democratic lawmakers have proposed a statewide gun buyback program. An economist says that CEOs are getting even steeper pay than labor advocates are decrying. Dane County may soon have a new election center. And in the second half, a peer specialist discusses his path from incarceration to community counseling. And Halloween is a reminder of days past. This is Stacey Harbaugh and Sean Bull with your local news coming to you from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. A Republican-led bill to redistrict Wisconsin's voting maps has had its first public hearing this morning, and state Democrats did not mince words. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Senator Mark Spritzer, a Democrat from Beloit, speculated that this Republican effort is simply meant to subvert the redistricting lawsuit in the state Supreme Court. He added that the proposal, as written, wouldn't require new maps to be in place before the 2030 redistricting process. Meanwhile, Representative Travis Trannell, a Republican from Cuba City, said that Democrats were missing out on the opportunity to create, quote, better government, unquote. The bill would give state lawmakers the final say on how maps are drawn. It has already passed in the Assembly without any public hearings, but Governor Evers will most likely veto whatever the Republican-led legislature sends to his desk. A statewide suicide and crisis hotline will receive nearly $17 million in federal grants after the legislature stripped its funding from the state budget. The three-digit 988 Wisconsin Lifeline is an outgrowth of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which revised its former 10-digit phone number to the three-digit 988. Many healthcare providers liken the change to the simplification of emergency calls in the 1960s to 911, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. Governor Tony Evers declared 2023 the year of mental health in Wisconsin and requested $500 million for mental health services in the upcoming biennial state budget. The legislature's Republican-led Joint Finance Committee rejected most of that proposal, including all the $3 million Evers sought for the 988 Wisconsin Lifeline. The federal grants will provide the service $13.8 million over three years from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It will also get $3.1 million budgeted by Congress. The 988 Wisconsin Lifeline is operated by Family Services of Northeast Wisconsin, a Green Bay-based agency that has trained counselors serving throughout the state. A former state Supreme Court justice who advised Assembly Speaker Robin Voss on the possibility of impeaching her more liberal successor will not have to testify on her role in the matter, a Dane County judge ruled Wednesday. Patience Roggensack was one of three conservative former justices Vaz consulted on the prospect of impeaching Justice Janet Protasewicz, who has called Wisconsin's legislative district maps rigged. Vaz is still threatening to impeach the justice if she rules against the legality of the current maps. Former Justices John Wilcox and David Prosser, who advised Vaz, have said they do not consider impeachment warranted. The Associated Press reports, Roggensack has refused to comment on the substance of her position. 
The watchdog group American Oversight filed a lawsuit alleging the justices violated the state opens meetings law by advising Voss in secret. The group also sought a subpoena that would have compelled Roggensack to testify in court. But Judge Frank Remington declined to enforce the subpoena. He also said that he would hear arguments today on whether the lawsuit alleging open meetings violations should be dismissed. A bill in Wisconsin's legislature would require nursing homes and assisted living facilities to give 90 days notice before evicting residents, Wisconsin Public Radio reports. The 90-day notice would also apply to relocation of residents as well as notice to an end to a facility's participation in the low-income Medicaid program. Current state law requires only a 30-day notice. Critics of the bill say it fails to address the root of the problem, the inadequacy of Medicaid funding to care for indigent patients. And today's legislative roundup comes with a cherry on top, as state legislators are poised to select the state's official cocktail. That would be, of course, the brandy old-fashioned. The proposal's authors, Representative John Plumer of Lodi and Senator Corey Tomchek of Mosinee, call the drink an unmistakable symbol of Wisconsin. They point to statistics showing that state residents account for over half of the annual sales for Cor- Corbell's brandy. They also point to the drink's history, becoming popular when 30,000 cases of brandy were found in the state in World War II after distilleries had halted production during the war. Now, if you're looking for a non-alcoholic option, Wisconsin already has an official state beverage. Legislators bestowed that honor on milk back in 1987. And since then, the legislatures adopted a variety of other state or other edible state symbols. The cranberry as the official state fruit in 2003, the kringle as the state pastry in 2013, and ginseng as the state herb in 2017. Two managers of a Columbia County grain mill where an explosion killed five employees have been convicted of numerous charges in federal court. The two were found guilty of workplace safety, fraud, environmental, and obstruction of justice charges last week by a Madison jury, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. The company pleaded guilty in September to charges that its employees falsified environmental and safety compliance records for years leading up to the 2017 explosion. It was fined $1 million and agreed to pay $10.25 million to the estates of the employees who died in the blast. A man accused of bringing a gun to the state capitol while demanding to see Governor Tony Evers is free again on a signature bond, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. (coughs) Joshua Plesnick, 43, made his initial appearance today in Dane County Circuit Court. He is charged with carrying a gun in a public building. According to the criminal complaint, Plesnick told police he wanted to speak to Evers about men who have been abused by women but aren't getting help from authorities. (coughs) He said he was armed to protect himself from an ex-girlfriend. More than one-third of students in the Madison Metropolitan School District were categorized as chronically absent in the 2021-2022 school year, the Capital Times reports. In addition, some 60% of African-American students and 40% of Hispanic students fell into the same category during that school year. Students who miss 18 days of school in a year are considered chronically absent, according to the Capital Times. Across Wisconsin schools, 22% of students were chronically absent in 2021 to 2022. And now, 
On to today's top stories. A 2018 study of gun ownership around the globe found that the United States outnumbers the world in gun ownership per capita with about 120 civilian-owned guns per 100 people. That study from the Small Arms Survey in Geneva estimated that the 393 million guns owned by civilians in the U.S. accounted for almost 40% of the world's firearms. So what do you do with a gun that you just don't want anymore? State lawmakers are proposing one solution. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Two Democratic lawmakers have unveiled legislation that would establish a statewide buyback program. The proposal, from Senator Melissa Agard of Madison and Representative Alex Jores of Middleton, would pay people to safely dispose of their unwanted firearms. The lawmakers say that, while gun owners may not use their unwanted firearms, they're still in danger of falling into the wrong hands. Last year, county supervisors approved a $50,000 gun buyback in Dane County. One of those supervisors was now Representative Jores. During that event last summer, law enforcement collected a total of 577 guns, exchanged for gift cards for fuel and groceries. Senator Agard says it's time to offer a similar program statewide. We do know that people in the state of Wisconsin and across the United States want to know that where they live, work, and play is safe. And we know that there are a lot of people in our communities that have firearms in their possessions that they would like to turn over. And currently there isn't a process for that. At the time of the Dane County buyback, Sheriff Ferret, a Democrat, was up for re-election. His Republican opponent, Detective Anthony Hamilton, suggested that the event was, quote, performative theater, unquote. But Barrett countered that the buyback was still a win. Senator Agard says that the proposed statewide program would not stipulate that the recovered firearms have to be destroyed. Instead, individual counties and municipalities may choose to store them in a secure location or, potentially, donate them to the Historical Society. Jeff Wild, a retired local pastor, has been leading a similar buyback for years. In addition to a gift card, the program offers people the chance to surrender their guns and have them turned into gardening tools. The city of Milwaukee also ran a series of buyback programs in the 90s. A 2022 evaluation published in a research journal found that, while semi-automatic handguns are most often the weapon of choice in Milwaukee's homicides and suicides, the majority of firearms recovered in the buybacks were small-caliber revolvers. The authors of that evaluation concluded that buyback programs may increase awareness of gun violence, but resources to prevent gun violence might be better spent elsewhere. Senator Agard says, Gun reform is vitally important. There is not one single action that we can take to address gun violence in Wisconsin and across the nation, but we need to be looking at this three-dimensionally and providing people the access to a gun buyback program to voluntarily dispose of unwanted firearms is just one of the tools that we need to have in our toolbox. The bill is currently circulating for co-sponsorship. It comes just two weeks after a Madison man carried a gun to the grounds of the state capitol, twice in one day seeking to speak to the governor. That man appeared in court this morning after a third arrest on suspicion of a concealed carry violation. Over 20,000 people nationwide died by gun violence last year, according to statistics from the Gun Violence Archive. Over 38,000 people were injured by a gun in 2022. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. A new study finds that the actual pay of General Motors CEO Mary Barra is 479 times that of the average auto worker. 
As the United Auto Workers strike enters its fifth week, one researcher is investigating why take-home compensation for top officers of major companies is even larger than you think. For more, 8 O'Clock Buzz host Jan Miyazaki spoke with Bill Lazonic, professor emeritus of economics at the University of Massachusetts and author of a new study. The problem is that the pay that everybody cites, the numbers, let's say for Mari Barra, the CEO of General Motors, are not what she actually gets. <laughs> not you know what goes into her bank account. It's not her actual pay. It's what's called an estimated fair value of her pay. And basically, when CEOs and other top executives get paid, there's a number of different components to their pay. There's a salary. There's sometimes a bonus. There is something called long-term incentive pay. There's some change in their pension. There's some other elements of pay. And then there's the two big ones. One is what they get from their stock awards and what they get from their stock options. Those can amount to about 80% of the total. So when people say that an executive get paid a lot and they get big salary and bonus, that's actually more than enough for anybody like you and me and anybody else. But that might be a million or two million dollars, but that's not leading to the 30 or 40 million that they're getting paid. It's the stock-based pay, which is realized gains from stock options and from stock awards. Realized gains means that's what you get in your bank account. That's what you pay taxes on. In the case of Mary Barra, the numbers being quoted for her pay in 2019 is 21.9 million, a lot of money, for 2022, 29.0 million. That's a 34% increase. UAW has used that increase along with averaging in the increases for the CEOs of Stellantis and Ford to say that since 2019, the CEOs have gotten a 40% increase in their pay and therefore we should get a 40% increase as well since the time of the last contract. The problem is that those numbers are wrong. Okay, now it turns out that the actual pay of Mary Barra for 2019 was not 21.9 million, but was 30.1 million. Okay, the actual pay of Mary Barra in 2022 was not 29.0 million, but 34.5 million. To make it even worse, in 2020, in the interim years, she got 40.5 million, and in 2021, 62.5 million. The notion that UAW's members' pay increases should be related to her pay increase doesn't work if you start looking at what she actually got paid. Her increase was actually less between 2019 and 2022, was 13%, but the average of her pay was way, way more than the numbers they're citing. The four years, the average of pay was 41.5 million versus the numbers they're using, 25.4 million. Okay, there's a lot of numbers there. Now, here's the problem. You get those numbers from the what's called the proxy statements of companies that they issue to shareholders before the annual general meeting. And since 2006, the Securities Exchange Commission, to whom the proxy statements or with whom the proxy statements are filed, has what's called a summary compensation table of all these different components of executive pay that I mentioned. And in that summary compensation table, there is the wrong number, a made-up number for stock-based pay, for stock awards and stock options, this fair value number. It's based on the number of shares that Mary Barra got, let's say, in 2022, when they take that $29 million. It's the number of shares that 
she got, the component part of it that's stock-based, times the grant date price, that is the price in 2022, of the stock awards or stock options. She's not getting the gains from the stock awards or stock options in 2022. In 2022, she's cashing in on stock options and stock awards that have been given previously. And the whole point of stock awards and stock options is to get the stock price up. And so what she actually gets paid in 2022, the $34.5 million, is based on the increase in the stock price from some previous year when she got the awards and options, the shares in them. And why is that important? Well, first of all, it's what she actually gets paid. It's what she pays taxes on. It's what General Motors, when it includes her compensation in their own tax filing to the IRS, that's included as a compensation expense. This fair value stuff is is just garbage. It's now 6.22 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After a 2022 review on Dane County's election security, county officials have selected the Old Ale Asylum Brewery as a location for an updated county election center. The renovation's cost, which is being considered as a part of the 2024 county budget, is projected at about $19 million. For more, our WORT news producer, Faye Parks, spoke to Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald earlier this afternoon. Thank you for joining me, Scott. Absolutely. So to start, what exactly is the purpose of this new election center? Yeah, the purpose is to have one location where we can store equipment, ballots, everything that is associated with an election, and also have a safe place for our employees to work. We had a Homeland Security assessment done of the city county building where we are now, and they recommended that we needed to be somewhere else that was safe. This is not a safe building. So that was the Election Security Review Committee? There was a Homeland Security professional came and did that assessment, and then that task force referenced that assessment in their report. And what were their main safety concerns? Well, there's several. There's too many ways in and out of this building, so that's an issue. A secure facility would have one secure entrance that would be you know, a safe way for employees to be behind a wall. Two, really, that we don't have proper space for the ballots and equipment, and actually they're all over the county right now. So that was another problem. And then just really, I mean, even just where I'm sitting right now in the city county building, there's hundreds of toilets and showers above me. So we have water that comes down, unfortunately, currently. So this just this building is not is not the correct site for elections at all. So to clarify, the election center would be sort of like a, a storage facility. Is that right? And offices. Yeah, everything would be located there. Okay, so it would be like a center for operations. It wouldn't be so much a, a polling place. It would be a year-round location. Right, it wouldn't be a polling place. It would be where we would store equipment, test equipment, store ballots, run recounts, have our offices, So really everything related to elections that isn't, you know, election day and uh, voting. And so it sounds like the Wold Architects and Engineers recommended Ale Asylum. Is that the final decision for the location? Yeah. So we have an accepted offer on the building. It's going to county board committee tonight. And then over the next, you know, couple of weeks, we'll get up to the board floor. The consensus opinion here among department administration and public works that this is this is the best choice. 
And so what specifically about the old Ale Asylum building makes it the best choice? A couple things. One, you know, originally we were looking at new build out out on Highway 12, kind of near the landfill. When we did some pricing on that, that would cost twice as much as retrofitting the Ale Asylum building. So right there, that's a big difference, obviously. Two, we can start using the building right away. It's in good shape. It's only like 11 years old. So just using that, the warehouse part of it, where they you know, would do the bottling and brewing and everything, we can start using that right away. And it's an upgrade over what a lot of the clerks are using in the county. And then it's on a bus line. So if, if we end up using it for you know different purposes in the future, that, that's an advantage then as well. It's got a large envelope. So like there's room for expansion, there's parking, there isn't a neighbor right next door. So all those things are are advantageous. So I read that the initial project estimate is for $19 million. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Where would that money be spent exactly? The budget, so to speak, is $19 million. The estimate we got from our architect is that we'd be able to do it within that $19 million at the Ale Asylum site. Besides securing you know, the building, buying the building and all that, there would be extensive renovation and you know, construction as far as office space, secure features, and then being able to have that storage in the warehouse. So, so make sure we have proper humidity control, heating, all those things. So You mentioned there's a meeting tonight. Uh, What exactly is the timeline for this project and where are you in the approval process? Yeah, so it's been introduced and has been referred to committee. It's before the executive committee tonight. That's my oversight for my office. And then I think it'll go to finance and public works next week. It's expected to be on the first meeting of November for approval. And then I think the estimate is about a year and a half to two years from that point, assuming it gets approved, to project completion. And do you see it getting the necessary funding in the 2024 budget? Yes. Okay, and in the meantime, you mentioned it will not be ready before the next election. Are you going to continue to operate where you are? Yeah, so we'll still be here doing doing what we do for the time being. The Madison City Clerk has been doing some security upgrades on their side of the hallway. So they, they're getting needed security improvements there for their current offices. But like I said, we will be able to, to, to use that warehouse for 2024, which will be very helpful for us. And so have you heard from any of your election employees or the public about this project? What is the general feeling around the new center? Yeah, no, I have. I, the clerks are, are very excited about it and appreciative of having a location that is safe and secure, that's dry. So, you know, that is something they're happy about. I got a positive response from the Towns Association, so those are the elected Towns Association, and from the city of Madison. So this seems to be very well received. So as we know, elections have been particularly contentious the last few years. Has the Dane County Election Center, where you guys perform that work currently, has that received any threats to safety, any concerns, more specifics like that? The city clerk's gotten death threats, and the city would locate their election offices out there. We've had some threats here, people trying to get into our offices and stuff. So, yeah, this would this would really take that problem. And if you look at threats that have occurred in other states, you know, one of the things we'll be able to do is have secure parking, secure entrance for employees so they can get in and out of the building safely. In Arizona, the building got surrounded. People couldn't even get out of the building. So I understand if you can't go into specifics, but have you changed any of your security practices recently? 
Yeah, we have here. I mean, like it's it's not it's not really a big state secret. I mean, we have plexiglass up, we have locked doors, we have card swipes that we didn't have before. We have cameras, and then we've also practiced some emergency, you know, how to handle emergencies and 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 things like that. So we've really spent a lot of time on on trying to ensure the safety of our employees. When it came to that review committee. Um, did they have any kind of precedent, any models they referred to, other facilities either in Wisconsin or across the country that run effectively as election centers? They didn't visit any others. My office has gone to facilities in Tampa, Phoenix, and actually Cook County just completed one like two years ago in Chicago. So, yeah, we have looked at larger facilities, ones that we can model the design after. And how much of this would you say is motivated by security issues? Is this progress that would have happened anyway, or is there heightened concern because of the general outcry around elections? That's a good question. I think this was necessary either way. I think we were kind of backwards in how we were handling election equipment and ballots and poll books and everything else. But certainly the concern about the safety of election workers has made this argument for this much easier. And I think there is a lot of concern about, you know, we're losing election officials. They're leaving. They're retiring early. You know, this is a real crisis for us. And so we need to do something to, you know, restore their faith and show that we have we have their back. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Scott. No problem. The time is now 6.33. I'm Sean Bull, here with my co-host, Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. In this week's edition of Out of the Box, feature contributor D-Star sits down with Stacy Clay, a formerly incarcerated peer support specialist. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Stacy Clay, a.k.a. Scala. Yes, sir. Um, so for those that don't know you, can you give us a little bit of uh, information about yourself? Oh, yeah. I'm Stacy Clay. You know, I'm a certified peer specialist. I work at Anesis Therapy, uh, crisis management and other things uh, with individuals, you know, teaching them skills or teaching them you know, certain things. I use our statements to be assertive or whatever. So can you tell us a little bit about Anesis? Uh, Anesis Therapy is uh, is an all black therapy that's uh, catering to the benefit of color people, like not just blacks, but colors like Native Americans, anybody that's in need of therapy or help or feel like they've been in the system, been marginalized or been invisible, haven't really been seen and, you know, feel like they haven't been treated appropriately. So they want to come there where they feel like they have a connection to the people, their roots, who they are, people that understand them and best can fit their needs to service their needs. So it's one of the only minority therapist places in Madison. Madison. Absolutely. So how did you get hooked up with them? Actually, I got hooked up there because my wife worked there. So my wife, she's a social worker there, you know, and she just, um, matter of fact, she just went and got her license. So, and uh, she told me about uh, a job there based on a lot of things I was doing, working, uh, my interests and the things I had with doing with young people. And she thought it'd be a good idea if I link up or put in an application to get a job there. So I just put in an application and uh, they gave me an interview and voila, 
Voila. Yeah, voila. <laughs> so um, let's break it down. This podcast is about, you know, helping formerly incarcerated people and incarcerated people right now. Can you give us a little bit of insight about your life and the obstacles that you've overcame and kind of give us a little bit about, you know, your story and how you became the man that you are right now? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, you know, the main, main streets of Milwaukee. I, was, I started off in the area code 53206 and then you know, went from there, you know, but I, I, I was all around the city or whatever, but starting off early on, you know, I had some issues. You know, I was molested as a kid and that wow. led to some issues. I was bullied as a kid, you know, so I grew up in a tough neighborhood trying to learn how to fight, how to be tough, but it was hard to do that because I had my mother's heart, you know, so I was able to feel things and so it took a different trajectory, but when I got in the streets and got to hanging out with friends, got to do alcohol and drugs and, you know, because of my abuse and all the things that happened to me, I ended up joining the gang and, and all these things led me to detention center, children's center, Wales, you know, ultimately prison for 28 years. Can you share with us a little bit about the circumstances that led you to prison? I was out doing drugs. I was hooked on drugs. I was addicted to drugs. At this point, I was homeless and you know, I really didn't have a place to stay and all that kind of stuff. So. I was out in the streets doing drugs and um, I came back one day and um, I was staying with you know some people and I came back one day and they were up upset, mad, I mean, whatever. So we get into it and they tried to stab me. Well, they pulled two butcher knives on me to stab me. And because I was tweaking and I was under the influence of, you know, cocaine, rock cocaine, especially, you know, I just flipped out and grabbed a knife and stabbed them and killed them. As a result of that, I ended up going you, to prison for 28 years. Right. 28 you know, years. Yeah, and I pretty and much turned myself in and did that because I knew that was wrong. I wanted to do the right thing. Plus, I was in a place where I wasn't raised like that. So so I turned myself in and went to prison and, uh, you know, did 25 years in prison. So what was some of the obstacles that you had to overcome in prison? And what are some of the things that you've learned? Well, the obstacles I had to overcome is that I had to get to learn myself. I had to get to know myself. I had to uh, stop blaming other people for me being there. You know, I had to look at myself and what I was doing and what got me there. And I had to think about where I was going to go. Because when I first got there, I blamed everybody. I blamed my mama. I blamed the system. I blamed racism. I blamed my daddy for not being there. I blamed, you know. So it wasn't until I got the realization later on that, you know, choices have consequences because uh, I see if the decisions I made that led me to this place. You get to prison first day kind of take me through the mind state you know what how old were you i just turned 21 oh wow so and i got sentenced to 25 to life so my first day i was tweaking tripping i couldn't even believe that i was in prison you know that was i wasn't i would have never thought my whole life as a kid that that would be my destination but i was there around all kinds of people. So it was a very new experience for me. I would, I, no, I wouldn't never say I wasn't scared because I'd be alive. I'd say I wasn't scared. Absolutely. I was scared. I was apprehensive. I was nervous. I had a little anxiety, but I paid attention, you know, and I learned quick. You know, I got a lot of information from people. I see what happened to other people. I know what to do, what not to do, how to move, how to navigate. So, so yeah, I got really good at that. So do you feel like everything that happened while you were in prison, like all of the work that you've done prepared you for the job that you have now? In many ways, but I never saw myself doing this work on the outside. Really? I just, no, because I just didn't, I did, because of my crime, my history, my level of education, where I come from, my area, I just didn't think that I had enough credentials or that it would be a, a, a place for me to do that. So, which is so great about peer specialists or being a peer specialist because it's really about your lived experience. You don't have to have a master's degree. Well, that is your master's degree, really, technically. Oh, yeah. You know, all the things that you've been through and you got all these people that's going through these things now. You, Who better to be able to sit 
to adhere, to listen to, to understand, to Somebody empathize with it. and support. Right. And why don't you share with our listeners today? You got some really good news today. Why don't you share with our listeners what that was? Today, I just got the news because um, being a certified peer specialist, what I found out is that even though I was out of prison, I did my time and I served my time and I did all these other things and had accolades that I was trying to work with a certain uh, segment of clients, uh, group of clients. And um, I had to go through the uh, go uh, in front of a board of rehabilitation to um, to get permission to uh, give services to these clients. And so today I just got approved and got OK to give services. And that's yeah. it. <laughs> and that made me smile. Right. Nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That made me smile, man. That's yeah. serious, man. Yeah. That's that's just. Man, to just give, I know it's going to give hope to so many people. You know what I mean? Like, yes, you did something, you made a mistake, you know what I mean? You weren't, you know, you're not running from that, you know, but you came back from that. Right, absolutely. Because I tell people, you know, know, when you start, your life is a story, right? It's a book. And, you know, the beginning might start out a little shaky, but you always have the ability to rewrite the ending. Because you can, you you determine, you know how the how the story is going to end. Yeah, you're gonna make some bumps in the road. There's gonna be some things, but you're gonna find your way. Sometimes, because you know, you're out of alignment. But once you get back in alignment and get back in alignment with your purpose and what you've been called to do, then it's all gonna take the rest. Gonna take care of itself. That was D Star sitting down with peer support specialist Stacy Clay. On this week's The House Always Wins, feature contributors John Stephanie and Ali Biriani share some more advice on how to book a good contractor. Hello, everyone. I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, where you can learn cool stuff about your house. Cool stuff. We all love cool stuff. Yeah. Hey, Allie. Last time we talked about finding a contractor, someone who you can trust to work in your home. Well... The fact is that while you're vetting the contractors, know that they are also deciding whether they want your business. In fact, these days, the demand for contractors is crazy, and it far exceeds the supply for sure. So some contractors can be pretty choosy about who they work for. And uh, think about it. A contractor that can pick and choose their clients is probably the kind of contractor you want, one of those whose reputation precedes them. Yeah, that's exactly right. So let's dig in a little on on that contractor-client dance. Ooh, dance. Mm. When you, the homeowner, are looking for a contractor, it's likely that your first point of contact is a voicemail or an email. Mm. And frustratingly, this is often the last point of contact. The contractor never responds to your inquiry, whether it is because they are super busy or they're a poor communicator I'm not sure that this is the contractor that you want, somebody who doesn't return your phone call. Oh, right. And it may be a little of column A and a little of column B, too, for that matter. Um, Busy and a poor communicator. But frankly, they're obviously not willing to do even the bare minimum for your business, right? So time to move on from that. However, there are ways you could increase the likelihood of a return call. If you got the contractor's name from a previous client, for instance, definitely name drop them. If it was a client they liked and would want to work for again, they are probably going to be more likely to give you a call back and not tarnish their own reputation by not calling. And frankly, while you will want to keep your initial voicemail or email very brief and to the point, it's a good idea to mention the type of project you're doing and a sentence about where you are in the process. Like we have plans and you know, we're past the, the thinking stage and we want to move forward. 
if you got plans and ready to go, it's a very different conversation than the conversation of like, oh, we're exploring the idea of a kitchen remodel. Some contractors really don't do in-house design work and they're looking for clients who have plans and idea and they will probably won't call you back. Yeah, and even before you start contacting contractors, do a little research on your own. So if the project is a kitchen remodel, what's the median price of that type of project in your area? If that's how much your kitchen costs, how would you pay for it? You know, contractors, they don't have a lot of patience for clients who want an $80,000 kitchen on a $20,000 budget. Oh, right. They want to know that you're being realistic. Right. And uh, if that project you want costs more than you can afford, it is natural to want to discuss cost-saving measures. Sure, that's fine, but understand that you won't get much empathy if you're questioning the labor and the management costs that are being proposed right off the bat. Yeah, I mean, those of us who work in the trades are aware that many professionals or white-collar workers think that plumbers and general contractors, that they all charge too much. Oh, my God, no. Yeah, and frankly, I think it's kind of an education and a class thing. Right. But this work that we do, it takes skill, and frankly, it takes a willingness to do it. And tradespeople know that our work has value, even if we aren't always respected for it. And, and frankly... Yeah, you know, no one will call Bosch or KitchenAid and try and dicker down the price of a dishwasher, but there's a sense that the cost of a plumber's labor is inflated and therefore negotiable right off the bat. And no one wants a disrespectful working relationship right from the start. Yeah, and this brings up another red flag for most contractors. It's the client who wants to be the general contractor. Ooh. Yeah, so this is often a client who maybe they have some organizational skills and, right. and they decide that the way they're going to save a little bit of money is by they're going to order all the project materials and schedule the various subcontractors. So how well does that typically work out? <laughs> well, um, it doesn't. Almost never. With rare exceptions. Rare exceptions. It just doesn't. Unless you absolutely know your way around building and remodeling and know how things go, just doesn't work. So for one thing, right, a contractor has relationships with their material suppliers. The contractor knows what they need, when they need it. They have a supplier in mind that gives them excellent pricing and they'll, those materials will show up at the right time. Secondly, and this is even more important, the contractors have relationships with all the other subcontractors you're going to need, like the plumbers, the electricians, the drywall finishers, et cetera, et cetera. When the contractor calls the electrician that they have been working with for years, that electrician is probably going to show up when scheduled with the right materials for the job. When a homeowner decides that they will find an electrician for the project, they may quickly find their calls aren't being returned because, frankly, the good electricians are busy working for all the usual contractors, right? And all of a sudden, schedules are a mess, get blown up, and budgets are all off the charts. Yeah, and all of a sudden, that that cost savings of not getting a general contractor is... Uh, out the window? Out the window. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, so we've mentioned a couple things, you know, name dropping in those first contacts. If you got the name of the contractor from somebody you know, that's always uh, a good strategy. You want to make sure you explain what the project is and where you are at, at in the process without leaving a two minute long voicemail. Nope. Um, you want to research how much you might expect a project like yours to cost and, and understand and accept that the, the skill set that you are hiring for, it has value and the people who do the work, they understand this and they prefer to be respected for it. Right. So what else do you think makes you a client that a contractor would want to work for? Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, 
be a good decision maker. I once had a job where we had to shut down the job for weeks at a time because the client couldn't pick a paint color. <laughs> I mean, it's just paint. It, it can be repainted. It's just not a big deal, but they couldn't choose a color. So have a good idea of what you want and be willing to pull the trigger on decisions, right? Uh, the contractor is going to have you on a schedule and nothing will throw all of that off than not being able to make decisions. And just know you will have to make a lot of choices. So you should already have done most of your research, right? Yeah. And along that lines of doing your research, you know, make sure the contractors that you're calling, they actually do projects like yours. Some companies don't take jobs under a certain price. Some only work on exteriors, some only on interiors. There's no point in wasting your time and the contractors calling, calling contractors who just don't even do the type of work you're looking for. Right. And uh, finally, uh, when you're interviewing those contractors, remember that they are also interviewing you. Be as clear and explicit as you can about your project's goals and expectations. You'll be trying to decide if you like the contractor's vibe, and they will be doing the same thing about you. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, for me, getting along with the clients matters them uh, quite a bit. You know, I, really the few projects that I just like look upon with regret, mm -hmm. there were the ones where I had some reservations right from jump. Yep. Um, but then uh, for whatever reason, now we're in this project together and both of us are pretty, pretty unhappy and we both want it done. And, you know, that's no way to... Uh, be the contractor. It's no way to be the client. Right. No way to run a rodeo, right? It's no way to run a rodeo. That's right. <laughs> or, a, or a circus. Or a circus. <laughs> a circus rodeo. Well, that's all we have time for today. So if you have any questions about home improvement, construction, or carpentry that you'd like us to answer, drop us an email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. And remember, people, don't leave the two-minute rambling voicemail. Really, just don't do it. But I'm gonna throw shade if I don't get paid for this housework. I call it housework. It's 6.48 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. How we choose to remember our younger selves can show up in many different ways. Beyond Halloween, how many of us use those memories of books, toys, or television shows in our very grown-up professions? On this edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor Jennifer Fields spoke with Dr. Sarah Ann Carter, the Executive Director and Assistant Professor for the Center for Design and Material Culture at UW-Madison. I remember Scooby-Doo, watching Velma, face it, she's the smartest, and the gang solve mystery after mystery in spaces dominated by hues of purple and blue. The show ran from 1969 through the 70s, a time when museums were a large part of the public consciousness. It was a bicentennial. Performance artists protested the Vietnam War, and Christo and Jean-Claude wrapped fabric around a coastline in Australia. All this while a bunch of meddling kids and a dog solved mysteries on Saturday morning television. This is not something that I had thought about very much until my 
son just started watching all of these Scooby-Doo episodes. And I found myself tired after a long day sitting down and watching with him over dinner and talking about it. And then the next day, finding myself having to take him to work with me at the museum for a tour or just to hang out in our galleries. And I found myself with him wondering, you know, there is there seems to be a connection here between these objects that we're looking at and thinking about and examining. And these this group of kids that we're watching work through all kinds of clues, work you know, look closely at things, try to really understand the world that they're living in and try hard to figure out what's really going on versus perhaps what they've been told is going on by those around them and those in power. And it got me thinking, well, is there is there a lesson here? Is there something that through all these conversations that I'm having with my son about these various Scooby-Doo books and early TV shows and toys where, of course, when we're watching them, you know, we're, I'm trying to use them as opportunities for, you know, conversation and critical thinking and cause and effect and understanding what's going on in these stories. It really just got me thinking about, wow, there's, there's something here that actually is applicable to the ways I'm trying to think about innovative curatorial work with my colleagues. Each episode starts with an object at the center of a mystery. Scooby and the gang would either stumble upon or be called to solve a problem, vexing someone older who appears to be in charge. It could be a family member, a shopkeep, or the caretaker of a super spooky mansion. Even though the adults are professionals, somehow they desperately need the help of a giant hungry dog and a bunch of teenagers. When I started really thinking about Scooby-Doo as a show that in some ways was about a kind of a kind of object-based epistemology, and then connecting that to the show's very clear focus on unmasking, on these kids really thinking hard about, well, what's really going on here? And being terrified of the monsters and masks, being terrified of the characters who need to be unmasked, knowing the whole time that actually once they're unmasked and once you reveal the truth to those characters, they can't really hurt you anymore. And that got me thinking a lot about some of the big issues that we deal with in museums today and in interdisciplinary scholarship more broadly. You're thinking, well, how do you really address questions about racism and class, capitalism and gender within broader historiographical work? And thinking about this relationship between object study, object-based epistemology, close looking at material things, and unmasking on the show really resonated with me as a scholar who's trying hard to think about how we can use objects to tell new kinds of stories and create histories that might be truer histories, that might invite a broader range of groups and narratives into the museum. We really don't know how Velma got to be so smart or how the gang earns enough money to buy gas for the mystery machine. However, it's clear they combine their talents to solve the mystery. Together, they create a multifaceted approach. According to Dr. Carter, it makes sense to consider information from not only scholarly and academic disciplines, 
but also from pop culture. One of the promises of material culture as a field, one of the promises of American studies as, as an approach, as a set of approaches, really, is to begin to realize, wow, all of these cultural texts have a great deal of value in understanding the world that we live in. And actually, all of these cultural texts help us understand something about our ways of understanding knowledge, our ways of organizing the world, the choices that we make. Just like I can't separate out my intellectual work as a scholar and the work I do as a mother, and I'm, I'm one person doing all those things, you can't necessarily separate out the world into things that are the purview of academics and the things that aren't. And I think that's very empowering because you begin to realize that there are patterns all around us that can help us understand the world. So what does this all mean? Is the plan to wear oversized orange sweaters and find the recipe for Scooby snacks? Maybe not. However, changing how we approach objects in museums or creepy old mansions couldn't hurt. And it's actually kind of a wonderful way to think about museums and historical sites because if you go into any sort of museum or historical site or art gallery and you go in there with the idea that there's a mystery to be solved, that there is something to be unmasked and uncovered and understood, like you are automatically a more active visitor, right? You're not just a passive visitor saying, oh, look, these things are beautiful or important. You're a visitor who's going and asking, well, what's going on here? What am I seeing? Why am I seeing this? What does this do for me? How can I connect this to something else? And that's really, I think, a curatorial hope and dream that when visitors come into your spaces, they're like, what is going on here? Wow, this is interesting. You know, what, what can I learn? How can I engage? What's my call to action when I leave? What do I learn through this experience? For WORT, I'm Jonathan Field. Come on, Scooby-Doo, I see you. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Russ Mackey was your headline writer. Special thanks to featured contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie, Ali Berrieni, Jennifer Fields, and Jan Miyasaki. Nicole Alley engineered the show, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sean Bull. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Will the brandy old-fashioned become our official state cocktail? You'll find out if you subscribe to the local news, WRT's local news. Subscribe as a podcast, wherever you find your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, you know, you know the drill. Up next, Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.